You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Okay, well, good morning, Midtown family. You make your way back to your seats. Uh, So fun to see everyone hanging out together and enjoying each other's company. Uh, Appreciate our hospitality of our church. Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, Again, it's great to worship together. God is worthy of our worship. So thanks even already this morning for helping me worship and get my eyes on God as we sing over each other like we already have and will do here at the end of the service. I do see a lot of new faces, so I should introduce myself. My name is Justin. I serve as the associate pastor at Midtown. And we're really glad that you're visiting here with us and would love it if if this became your new spiritual home at Midtown. I'd be happy to help get you a connector to tell you more about our church. Or for that matter, if you're looking for different churches, could recommend other great churches in Austin. But glad that you're visiting here with us and hope that today you experience God's love for you. We are continuing in our summer series called the Psalms of Summer. It's been fun. We've been doing this for about the the last five or six years. We'll take five or six weeks to go through the Psalms. I did the math. There's 150 Psalms. So if we keep at this pace, we're going to finish the book of Psalms in 2045. All right. Y'all going to be around? You're going to be here with me? Come on. We can do it. No promises that we're going to do that, but we do have a real fun time doing this during the summer. And one of the things that we like about doing Psalms of Summer is because there's so many different Psalms And so our staff get to pick kind of which psalm they want to teach on, and it's just because it gives us such a variety of topics that we can teach toward because the psalms are just so diverse, right? And now I'm going to make you do it. Barry can't answer this because he's the only one who got it right last time. What is the phrase that I tell you every summer when we do the psalms of summer? There's a... Good. Barry's not the, the, the pet anymore, so good. There's a psalm for every season. And so I love that we do this, that we just go through the Psalms, because I really believe that that's to be true, and it's been a pretty important uh, part of my life, because in the, in the Psalms, you've got these prayers and these songs, some that were intimate, just written by an individual, others that were meant to be corporately read together and recited, all different kinds of backgrounds. So there's a Psalm for every season, whether you're in despair or whether you're in hope, whether you're in lament or joy, whether you're in failure or victory or stagnation or spiritual growth or confusion or clarity or fearful or bold or anxious or at peace or broken or experiencing healing. Like there's a psalm for every season. So one of the practices that I've tried to do that I've been encouraging you to do is to at various times in your life to find a psalm for the season. One that doesn't even necessarily have to be an entire psalm. It might just be two or three verses that you hold on to and say, oh man, this is it for me. This is the one I'm going to constantly pray and meditate on and keep before me until God answers the prayer or releases you from that psalm. And I'll be real honest with you, I don't have one right now. And so I'm really excited uh, to, to spend the next couple of weeks. So when I was re- studying for this, I was like, man, I need a psalm for a season for right now. Because I just got past my Psalm 66 season, and now I need to find another one. So I'm going to do it by, by September 1st. I'm going to find one. And whether you guys, you know, got encouragement from this and have already found one for yourself, would still encourage you to do so. Well, the one that we're going to look at today is a really interesting psalm, a unique psalm. And you see if you've got your connection card, you've got the title. I'm calling it A Cry for Mercy. And so it's a psalm where the psalmist cries for mercy because he recognizes the depth of his own sin, the depth of his own need for saving grace and the forgiveness of God. So it's a cry to God for mercy on him. If you're able, I would invite you to stand in the reading of God's word. And Michael Q is going to read our scripture from Psalm 130. Thank you, sir. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will will redeem Israel from all their sins. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Michael. Wonderful to read it that way, too. Let me uh, give a little bit of context for this psalm before we actually jump into it. So this is a unique psalm because it's it's what's called one of the Psalms of Ascent. And so if you're unfamiliar, there's 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're called that because these were the songs that the pilgrims would make as they made their way to Jerusalem for the three times a year where the whole people of Israel were supposed to worship together. And so in these psalms, you've got this whole pilgrimage. Some actually call them the pilgrim psalms because of the ones that people would do as they were making their way to the place of worship. They're called the Psalms of Ascent also because Jerusalem was on a hill. So as people from all the different places they live made their way to Jerusalem, they're walking up this hill, and these are among the psalms that they would actually recite and sing and read and meditate upon as they're going on this five to seven day journey to go experience worship at the temple. And in these, these psalms, uh, because they're these psalms of ascent, you're going to see some that are prayers of protection as they're making their journey. There's others that are uh, psalms that indicate that they're prayers for the city of Jerusalem. It's like they're seeing the city and they're praying for it as they're approaching it. You've got prayers of longing, like waiting to meet with God, like anticipation of like, I want to be with God. You've got some of those psalms of ascent are asking for blessing and prosperity on the people of Israel. You've got some that are actually prayers for unity, that we would be unified as we come together to worship. And the psalm we're going to look at today It's actually a psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance. And you've got to imagine, you've got this group of people, you've got whoever wrote this or whoever put it in the the Psalms of Ascent to be one that they would continue to read as they made their way to God. They're approaching a holy God. They're making their way. And as they do, and their eyes are fixed on God, the psalmist realizes he needs God's mercy. He needs God's mercy. And so that's what we're going to get here in the psalm. There's actually uh, seven of these psalms in the Bible. They're actually called the uh, penitential psongs or the penance psalms. Penance is like, just means a word we don't use very often, right? But it's an outward sign of contrition. It's, it's when someone feels convicted and broken, they come in penance. And there's seven of these psalms. If you want to write them down and just to read them later, it's Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, 51, 102, 140. And then the one we're looking at today is Psalm 130. Five of the seven actually are Psalms of David, and only one of them, though, do we know the exact context. Matt actually taught on this during the Psalms of Summer a couple years ago. Psalm 51, it's one of the more famous uh, Psalms where we know this was the context was that David had just been confronted by Nathan of his sin, and it came alive to him that someone knew that he had committed adultery and murder. And in that moment, penance, David repents, and he writes this Psalm of confession, a penance type of Psalm. So that's one of the seven, but the others, we don't really know uh, the, the context for them. Five by David, like I said, two not, not known authors, and the one that we're looking at today is not known. So we don't necessarily know the context, but I have a pretty good idea for the context, whether it was someone who wrote it as they were making their ascent, or whether it was someone that picked up on it and said, no, this is one of the ones that we need as we make our ascent. You get an idea of why someone would pray these kind of prayers as they're approaching the Holy of Holies, they're approaching God's throne and recognizing their own need for God's grace. 
just for an example, or just to let you get a little context, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 16, you'll get the idea of how many times the people were supposed to do this approaching of Jerusalem and make this ascent. Three times a year, all of your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place I will choose, or he will choose. We know later this was going to be the temple. The tabernacle then grew into be the temple. The festival of unleavened bread, festival of weeks, festival of tabernacles. And no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord, your God, has blessed you. So three times a year, all the people were to gather, and they were supposed to go and make this ascent. And as they're doing it, they're always told, you cannot come without something. You have to come with an offering, a sacrifice, something to bring to God, often for the forgiveness of your sins, particularly if they were perhaps walking up to one of the feasts of unleavened bread, which is also the Passover. If they're making their way to the Passover, they're remembering that when God passed over them, he brought judgment upon Egypt, but saved them by the blood of the lamb that was put on their doors. And as they're making their way, they're remembering that story. They're thinking about that. That could very well be the context for whoever wrote this. Needless to say, though, it's a psalm of ascent, and they're making their way to the Holy of Holies to worship God, and his first instinct is to cry, is to cry for mercy. They need mercy. Don't show your hands here. You can nod or wink at me if you like, but have you ever, like, felt guilty coming on a Sunday morning? Like sometimes? Okay. Yep, Sometimes. Because what Sunday mornings do is they, they offer us an opportunity, usually, to reflect back on the previous week and to come before God. And most of the time, not most of the time, I'll say often, if you're like me, you look back on the week and you think about things that you've said, things that you've done, things that you've thought. Or you think about things you didn't do that you said you were going to do, things that you wished you had done, so you've left these things undone. And you can come to the place of worship sometimes with a place of just conviction, uh, of guilt. And I'm going to try to argue today here that that's a good thing. So stick with me on that. It can be a good thing because it helps us cry out for the mercy of God. I don't have kids, but I've been told that putting kids in the car on a Sunday morning for worship is like one of the most demonic periods of, of all of your week. Um, I know from experience, when, it's great. Now, Brenda and I take separate cars to, to worship now because I get here early to set up. But I guarantee if we rode together, we would likely fight often. Like, why does it happen? Why these little times right before worship? So whether it's the whole week you're reflecting back on or literally the last 10 minutes before you walk in this room, we often come to this place with a sense of conviction that we've left things undone that we wanted to do or we've done some things during the week that we wish that we hadn't. And if that is the case for you, you're in good company because this was one of the favorite psalms of many of the fathers of our faith. This was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. Augustine was a fourth-century spiritual leader who wrestled immensely with his flesh and with sin and habitual sin, so much that he wrote one of the more famous books in, in Christian history called The Confessions, where he details the battles that he had. And so he took solace in this psalm. This was his favorite. Or it was also John Calvin's favorite psalm. Martin Luther King wrote extensively about this psalm, and this was psalm, I'm going to tell the story in a minute, but this psalm was instrumental in leading John Wesley, the father of the Methodist movement, to faith. This psalm the one that we're going to look at today. So for now, if you can, you've already made the pilgrimage to 45th and Red River to be here, so you've already come to the place of worship, but if you can, put yourself in the mindset of taking a journey, four, five, six, seven days up to Jerusalem to worship God. And that's the context for where this person's going to experience ultimately the mercy of God, but first, the very deep conviction of God. If you're a note taker, the three points are it's going to be a cry for mercy, 
a declaration of hope, and a call to action. So first, let's start with this cry for mercy. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Because if, Lord, you had kept record of sins, Lord, who could stand? This first part of his prayer is just simply just a cry for mercy. He's crying out to God, recognizing that he's lost and he's needing God's mercy. That's his prayer. That's his cry. It's very possible that on this pilgrimage, like we just kind of talked about with us, that maybe he's thinking about the things the last time that he had been there. If they only did this three times a year, let's say he skipped twice. And so he's going for the first time in a year. And as he's going, he's reflecting back on the year and he's thinking about things that he's done, things that he's said, things that he's thought, all the things he left undone. Maybe the previous year he had gone into the temple and made a promise to God. And now he's remembering that he didn't really fulfill that very well. He's going to the very place of God to worship and he recognizes, I need God's mercy. Cry out. In fact, he considers himself, where he actually considers himself as in the depths. He says, out of the depths I cry. And for Hebrew people, the depths would have had a, 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 a kind of a metaphor for being like caught up in the ocean or actually like caught up in the middle of the earth. He's adrift in the water. He's drowning. He's walking away and wandering away. And he's in that place of, of nearly drowning and crying out for mercy, or he's considering himself like stuck in the bowels of the earth, quicksand and sinking down. His, his only thing he can do is cry out, God, have mercy. I want to try to convince you guys, like I said, that this kind of conviction is a very, very good thing. It's good because it leads us to the mercy of God and a recognition that we need God's grace. I want to be distinct between conviction or guilt and shame. Shame is when you feel bad about who you are. That's not from God. God doesn't want us to feel bad about who we are. But guilt is when we feel bad about what we've done or what we've left undone. And that's a very good thing for us to experience as believers. And God wants us to experience it because it will ultimately lead us back to God's grace and our recognition that we need to cry out for God's mercy. We need it. But in American culture, we don't like feeling guilty, right? We, we pretty much try to do everything we can do to kind of put it away. We like to ignore it. We like to cover it up. We don't like to feel it. And sometimes even in our Christian circles, we can think that, well, this isn't really of God. I shouldn't feel this way. And I think there's kind of a worldly way that we try to cover it up and ignore it, and there's kind of a religious way that we do it. We give this a ton of different reasons, but these two categories are helpful for me. The worldly way that we try to get rid of our guilt when we feel it is that we justify it. We just justify it, right? We justify it by minimizing it. We say, it's not that bad. We justify it by rationalizing it. We say, well, I really deserve it. I've done a lot of other things. I deserve this. Or nowadays, we justify sin by identifying with it. We say, well, this is just who, this is just who I am. It's who God, how God made me. Or we blame. We blame the devil. We blame other people. You made me do it. You made me this way. Or we even blame God. The worldly way of trying to get rid of our guilt and cover it up and ignore it is just by justifying it. But there's also a religious way that we do it. We ignore and we try to cover up our, our guilt in a religious way too. And I call that by comparison. We do it by comparing ourselves with others or others in the culture. So I could do what we call maybe, I call it stratifying sin. We say, well, well I, I, I do this, but at least I don't do that. Or we compartmentalize our sin in a religious way where we say, I'm doing great in these areas, so I can kind of leave this area to myself. Or we hide sin. We just say, I'm going to keep this from other people because I don't want anyone to know about it. Or maybe one of the easiest ones we do in a religious way is we theologize our sin. We rewrite scripture to make it seem justifiable. 
I think this doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as it meant back then. It's different today in our culture. So we do all of these things, whether justification, comparison, could probably list a whole host of other things, but whatever we do, we always are trying to cover up or ignore our guilt. And I want to encourage you guys to embrace the guilt because that's where you're going to find God's mercy. In Luke chapter 18, John, or Jesus is actually teaching his disciples how to pray. And he gives them just a really neat illustration. He says, here's how, you, here's, I want to teach you guys how to pray. Let me tell you a story. There's two guys that go in to pray. One's a religious man and one's a tax collector. And the religious man, he goes in and he prays, says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other evildoers and robbers, even like this tax collector. I give a tenth of my stuff and I, I fast twice a week. Then he says, the tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he tells the disciples, that guy, the tax collector is the one who's praying right. That's the one who went justified before God. God wants us to come to him with a sense of needing his mercy. That's how he invited his disciples to pray. We need God's mercy. Come to him and cry out for it. That's exactly how he taught his disciples to pray. And why would he in the Lord's Prayer, the kind of main prayer that he teaches them how to pray? Part of it is forgive us our trespasses. Part of it is lead me not in temptation. God, Jesus is encouraging his people to call out to him in mercy. It's good for our souls to feel guilt and conviction over our sin because it leads us to cry out for mercy. If we ignore and we cover up our guilt and conviction through justification or comparison, we miss out on the grace and forgiveness that could be ours. We miss out on it. So when this pilgrim's coming to the temple, the closer and closer that he gets to this place of worship and recognizing his need and his depths of his sin and how he needs God's mercy, he asks a rhetorical question. He asks, if you kept record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Rhetorical. The answer, no one. Like if he kept a record, he's thinking through probably as he's making his way, walking, he's thinking through all the things that he's done since the last time he's been there. And he's thinking, man, if God kept a record of this and I'm going to enter this place and God's to put it here before me, I, I can't stand. I can't do it. Nor can you, nor can me. We can't stand before a righteous God. We need the righteousness of Christ to be put upon us, which is what we have on this side of the cross. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could have the righteousness of God that we can stand before God. And all of us who've at some point in our lives put our faith in Jesus, this was actually what happened. What happened to you was you came aware of the conviction of your sin. You recognized that you didn't have righteousness to stand before God. And you in some way in your heart asked this question. Lord, if you kept record of my sins, who could stand? How can I stand? And in that point, you put your faith in Jesus to let him be the one to stand in your place for you. For me, that was in the summer of 1988 at the Rocky Mountain Getaway in Estes Park, Colorado. When was it for you? Remember that day. That was the day that you first put your faith in Jesus when you recognized your need for him. And for those of you, I know that we have some here who've yet to do that. I would just plead with you, put your faith in Jesus. Like you can't stand before God without Christ's righteousness, which he gives you when you just put your faith in him and tell him that you need him. But it starts with you actually crying out for mercy. That's what happened to John Wesley. He walked into uh, St. Uh, 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 Paul's Cathedral in London. And one of the things that he heard when he walked into this church, he was actually, he was actually already a minister. So he was very religious, but he had never really come to a place of brokenness to recognize that he needed God's mercy and forgiveness. And so he walks into this church and he hears the choir singing this stanza over and over again. 
If you kept record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? If you kept record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? If you kept record, and it says that that started him on his journey to salvation. Just hearing that line repeated and repeated, he realized, I can't stand. And that led him to an amazing conversion where he put his faith in Jesus and led an entire movement called the Methodist Movement. It was from this psalm that we're reading today. Let's not ignore or cover up our guilt or shame through justification or through comparison. Let's feel the weight of it and cry out to God for mercy, just like the psalmist did, like Augustine did, like Calvin did, like Luther did, like Wesley did. We're in good company. We need God's forgiveness, which is where the psalmist turns next. First is a cry for mercy, but second is this great declaration of hope, declaration of hope. But with you, there's forgiveness. So we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. It's not really a prayer anymore. (laughs) He's got his prayer where he's praying for forgiveness. At least it's not a petition prayer. Now it's just a declaration. It's a direct declaration. Like he recognizes who can stand before you, but then he remembers what God is like. But with you, there's forgiveness. He knows that this is the type of God that he has. He has a God that loves us, that has compassion on us, that has mercy, who forgives us, who understands how we were made. And he comes to recognize that though I cry out for mercy and I realize I'm in the depths, God is a God of grace and his forgiveness awaits me. And probably Jesus' most famous parable, you're very familiar with it. He teaches about two sons, one son who wants his father's money now. It's almost like telling his father, I wish you were dead, so give me my inheritance now. And the father relents and gives him that inheritance. And he goes off and he lives and spends it in wild life, wild living, wastes all of his money, wastes everything he had, and ultimately finds himself in a pigsty, the worst place a Hebrew person could be. And then out of the depths of a pigsty, he comes to his senses and begins to recognize that he needs his father's mercy. And so he starts to make his way back. And in the story, the father's sitting on the porch He sees the son from far off and he runs back to receive him. They come back and they throw a party for him. And then there's the older brother who's not too pleased with how things are going down and asks him why he wouldn't throw a party for him. Jesus is teaching many things through that parable, but one that he was teaching for sure is our God is a forgiving God. Like the psalmist declares, with you, there is forgiveness. With God, there is forgiveness. This young son can come back and God will embrace him. But he's also teaching a second thing through this, through this par- parable. And that's that you need to be able to see your sin to recognize that you need it. The young son actually realized it in a pigsty. The older religious one still hadn't. He didn't recognize that he needed this grace just as much. We need to see and believe that we need God's mercy. The Apostle John writes about it this way. He says, if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves. We're just fooling ourselves. The truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, what's God like? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us all our unrighteousness. So we need to come to him and confess. But if we claim that we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We have to recognize our sin and just come to him with that confession. My dear children, I write you this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
We have to recognize our sin. We can't be like the older brother who doesn't realize it. We can't say that we haven't. We just say that we have, and we know that we need God's mercy, and he invites us not just upon our salvation to put our faith in Jesus, but throughout the rest of our days to continue to come to him with our confession and to receive his forgiveness anew again and again and again. Our God is forgiving, and the psalmist and the apostle John are declaring it. If we can go back to the previous slide on the declaration of hope, you're going to see something else here. That while we realize that God, what God is like, when we realize that this is what God's like, when we realize the depth of our sin, you have to realize the depth of it. When you realize the depth of it, then that magnifies God's mercy and grace. And when you magnify God's mercy and grace, that's what's going to spur you on to love and serve God, to worship him and to serve others. Listen to what the psalmist says. With you, there's forgiveness so that we can, in reverence, serve you. What is it that motivates him? It's, it's, it's the forgiveness that makes me want to reverence you, makes me want to worship you, makes me want to serve you, makes me want to serve others. When we recognize the depth of our sin, the greatness of God's mercy, that's what spurs us on to a life of faith, a life of worship of a God who's been so merciful to us. The Apostle Paul, probably more than any of the other authors in the New Testament, was just so captivated by the fact that he was so sinful. A guy that was literally going out killing Christians, a radical conversion. And I think it never, it, it just changed his whole life in a way that he always reflected on how merciful God was. So he would write things like in his book of First Corinthians, that the love of Christ compels me. What was it? It was the love of Christ, the love that God had for him that compels him. He said, because I'm convinced that one died for all and therefore all died that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and raised again. He, his, his life was motivated by the love of God that led him to worship because he saw how bad he was, but how good God was. And it continued to spur him on. So much that in his book of Romans, which we know is the most robust kind of ex explanation of the gospel, he's got 11 entire chapters that's just deep, deep development on how broken we are and sinful and apart from God and we can't make our way to God, but then how great and abundant the grace of God is to those that receive it. 11 chapters, just in detail. And when he finally gets to a point to talk about maybe some instruction from all this truth, he starts it this way. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Like, why do we worship? We worship in view of God's mercy. If we see the depths and we see God's mercy, that's what motivates us to worship. But so often, the older we get sometimes in our Christian faith, we start to get this mixed up. We get it mixed up and we find ourselves trying to do things to earn God's favor. We start to think that maybe the depths of our sin isn't so bad and that we've actually been pretty good. And we start to motivate ourselves by different means than motivation by the way that God has loved us. In view of God's mercy, we worship. And the psalmist would say here, you are a forgiving God, but with you there's forgiveness so that we can, in reverence, serve you. He knew this was what was going to motivate his worship as he made his way toward the temple. This is why we take communion every week at Midtown, because we want to have a weekly reminder of the grace of God. We talk about it in, in most of our sermons, but we want, it to, we want to take communion every single week because we want a weekly chance for us to come before God, recognition of our need, amplifying God's grace, receiving it afresh again, and letting that be what motivates us into our week to walk with him, to worship him because of what he has done for us and the abundant grace that he has given us. So let's let mercy and forgiveness of God be what motivates us to worship and to serve him and to serve others. Let's daily and weekly remember the love of God expressed to us through the atonement of Jesus 
and let it move us to serve him until he calls us home. As the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. In his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. In this life, we can rejoice in God's mercy and forgiveness and let it move us to love and service. That's a declaration of hope. I hope you feel that hope. Finally, there's a call to action, a call to action in the last two verses here. Kind of turns into a sermon, not so much a prayer. He's not talking to God now. He's talking to Israel. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Like I said, the psalm shifts. It's not so much now that he's talking with God or talking with God. He's actually now turned toward Israel. Now that he's recognized this great news that out of the depths he could cry out to God for mercy, and God is a forgiving God. And we can put our hope in him and in his word. And now he turns to the people and he says, you guys, you got to believe this. You've got to receive this. So let me just say to you in my own words, and I'll put Midtown in there. Midtown family, put your hope in the Lord. For with him is unfailing love and full redemption. Midtown, put your hope in the Lord. With him alone is unfailing love and full redemption. God loves you guys. His love's unfailing. Confess your sin. Cry out to mercy. Receive his love and forgiveness. Receive it for the first time today if you haven't. Or receive it anew this morning. Don't justify your sin. Don't compare your sin. Cry out to him for mercy. Because with him, there is forgiveness. Notice the superlatives <laughs> that are throughout these last verses when he's preaching to Israel. He says God's love is what? It's unfailing. How kind of, what kind of redemption? It's full redemption. Who's going to be forgiven? All of us. It's unfailing. It's full. It's all. In his closing remarks, he's answering three questions that he wants everyone to take with him. It's what does God forgive? How does he forgive it? And why does he forgive it? What does God forgive? He forgives all their sins. He himself will redeem Israel from what? From all their sins. We all need God's redemption. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What Jesus came to do was to pay the penalty for our sins, that we could be completely absolved of them and have his righteousness. That's what God forgives. How does he forgive, though? He forgives fully. With him, there is full redemption. When you put your faith in Jesus, that first time that you did it, me, 1988, when you guys do it, from that moment on, full redemption. You are redeemed fully from the penalty of sin, from your past, from the power of sin right now, and ultimately from the very presence of sin when God takes us home. Some of you I know have had cancer treatments, and I've heard that one of the things that you always ask when you get out of a cancer treatment is you ask, did they get it all? That's the first question. And I want to tell you, God got it all, all of your sin all of your past, all of your future. He's got it all. It's full redemption. And most profoundly, why does God forgive? Why? Because of his character. His unfailing with love. With the Lord, there is unfailing love. God forgives because he's unfailing. His love is unconditional. His love is never ending. He loves you. And he demonstrates his love for you in this, that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life in Christ. God's love 
is unfailing for you and for me. Midtown, put your hope in the Lord, for with him is unfailing love and full redemption. Amen? Amen. I want to dismiss our ushers to uh, distribute communion. It'd be easy to take this psalm to reflect on as we do with communion, as they do. Let me give you just a few minutes of silence just for you to confess that you need God's mercy and to remember that with our God, there is forgiveness. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.